Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, I know you're always uh, there for bereaved siblings, and we've got one on today, but a bigger story than that. And we're going to be talking to him about honoring your grief rather than stuffing it or trying to get rid of it and see how he's done it. So, Heidi, would you like to introduce him? Sure, Mom. Like you said, our guest today is no stranger to grief and loss. He has had numerous losses in his life and he does such an amazing job of honoring his grief and of showing us that there is hope after loss. His name is Addison Brazil. He is a bereaved sibling. His brother died of a brain tumor when Addison was only 19 years old. Addison also found his father after he died by suicide. He also has survived a fatal car accident that killed a close friend and left him relearning how to walk. And he is the author of the book, First Year of Grief Club. Welcome to the show, Addison. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. My brother's name is Austin. We really did have an extended support system, especially around my brother and well beyond my big family, but into the community. My brother was really well known in our small town. And um, to be honest, it, it was quite competitive to get alone time with him, especially during those, those last months of his life. I sort of was living my dream, dancing on scholarship at a school in the States um, and, you know, at the highest sort of level and under that pressure, but obviously just thriving and getting to do what I always wanted. And then on the other side, I have my younger brother, two years younger, who also had dreams and hopes and, and plans for life and, and um, navigating him being terminally ill alongside an entire family. And I can't speak for anybody else, but what it definitely taught me at that age was that everybody deals with death and grief completely differently. And every grief process is so specific to the individual relationship of, of who you lost and what your relationship was with them. So it taught me at a very young age to sort of never make these blanket statements about what grief is or isn't and always sort of welcome other people to define it for themselves. Because uh, I know even within my own household, it was just so completely different. So Addison, I'm wondering, I can, I can definitely identify with that since I was 20 when my 17 year old brother died and we all dealt with it very different. I'm wondering what helped you, what, how did you deal with it? In that specific case for me, I honored kind of going back to what brought me joy and what gave me purpose. I was very lucky that I sort of had this seed planted prior to my brother's death of what what I really wanted to do and what I wanted to focus on. So I actually, after my, my brother ended up passing on September 1st and I had, I had planned to be off of college for that whole semester. And about three weeks later, I kind of build the powers that be to see if there was any way that I could go back and I could get back to it. And, and I chose to go back and to be dancing in this rigorous program, 14 to 16 hours a day, just sort of right in the like the height of the competitiveness of it. And, and knowing that like I was expected to do everything that I needed to do to maintain my scholarship and also still pass having missing three weeks. So I sort of really chose to dive in. 
Um, another thing at that time um, in that original grief process that really inspired me was starting the organization with my brother, which was called uh, Team Brother Bear Foundation. And it still exists to this day, and it, it supports other children and families with brain tumors. And that was something that was really important to him that I sort of could lay the groundwork with him while he was still living and that I've continued to do for 15 years since. So for me, service and doing and, and maybe a little bit of perfection, which I've since worked on a lot since then, is what really came up in that initial process and sort of this big brother, not I wouldn't say guilt, but just responsibility to really do what I was here to do and what brought me joy, especially knowing that that, that was a privilege that my younger brother wasn't going to get. Well, what I find interesting about this is that the two things that you gravitated towards, the research has shown, are two of the most important things. One is making meaning out of your loss, which is what you did with you and your brother working together. And the other one is, is moving your body, dance. Mm. And, you know, my mom and I had Dr. Russell Vanderkoek on our show talking about how, you know, traumatic loss is trapped in the body and how when we move our bodies, it helps us to grieve and it helps us to get the traumatic loss out and you did that you reconciled with your father developing a great relationship and then he died by suicide and you found him is that correct yeah that's correct yes uh, so we had grown grown quite close in the last six months of his life and um he, he was he was struggling with his mental health um again this is before I joined a men's mental health movement and there were apps and people were talking about it and it was on billboards. It was, it was much harder to identify. And um, I, was, I was 23 at the time, um, but I was sort of his closest contact. And um, when the time came, I was, yes, the one who, um, who discovered him. How did you deal with it? Yeah, so that was definitely one of the biggest challenges of my life. My dad's loss, immediately paused everything as I knew it to be and my full-time job did become recovery. Uh, I suffered greatly with PTSD. Um, I rarely slept the first year. I had flashbacks. I had to stop driving because um, I just never knew when it was going to hit. There was something going on in my in my body and in my brain that basically the best way that I can explain it is I understood that my father had passed and I understood that I had this traumatic memory but every time my brain tried to put that together that that traumatic memory was my father I would actually have a physical reaction almost like a mini seizure where I would sort of shake but my brain was constantly flashing me that flashback and sometimes those flashbacks are so intense and when I say flashback I mean I feel like I'm back in the room where I found my father and I'm seeing his body and I'm feeling the feelings I was feeling so for all intents and purposes I believe I'm right back where I was um, feeling unsafe and like nobody could help me and and, and that I couldn't help my father um, and that it was already too late and and there was no rhyme or reason to when that would show up I mean I had triggers that I eventually identified and tried to build new relationships with over a lot of time but in those in those beginning months I mean it was just really tiptoeing around and you know I was 23 years old and suddenly afraid of the dark again because when you're having flashbacks and you're half asleep you don't know what's real and what's not real I would feel sometimes like my father was really in the room and it was just so disorienting because this man who loved me more than anything became a danger to me but only in in flashbacks and in memory so trying to unravel that is sort of like the wires of a bomb, like in a movie when you see them being so careful, because it is these two completely separate things that you're trying to make peace with in your mind. And I'm, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I mean, it took 
probably four and a half years to get to a point where I could healthily have the subject be brought up, understand that it was my father who I loved and cared about and the trauma around how I found him after his death and put those two things together and not have some sort of reaction or flashback that was really inhibiting my life and my ability to show up in that moment. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how you did that, Addison. I really went to the ends of the earth to try to heal with this because I, I really, really didn't want to just survive. I wanted to thrive as, as weird as that sounds, you know, and, and almost cliche. I just, I was too young and I knew too well that both my brother and my father, the last thing that they would have wanted is then for me to just sort of live in the shadow of these losses and, and not continue. Um, so I, I, I did pretty much everything you can think of and I think is available to you. Um, I, I was very privileged with community that supported me doing that and family. And it was at that time that I started to look at both holistically and medically anything and everything that I could do, whether it was breathing techniques, meditation, yoga, therapy, life coaching. I mean, you name it, if it was available, I was trying to do anything and everything to just kind of have my feet planted again and, and kind of be able to reapproach my life. I believed at, you know, at a certain point that I had fixed my grief and I had fixed the mental health around those two losses. And I actually went out to celebrate that with a friend. And on the way home, we got into a, a fatal accident that um, killed my dear friend and left me relearning to walk uh, with a brain injury. The interesting thing about this grief process which you'd think my father had prepared me in a way for was that my father's, that PTSD was very mental and then my body didn't understand what was happening. And then with the accident, it felt like my body knew something that my mind was unable to understand. My body did keep the score um, mm -hmm. as the good doctor says. And, and so it was, it was very interesting because I sort of had inverse PTSD. It was a completely different process for me, not to mention, as you mentioned earlier, the way I've always healthily dealt with things was movement and using my body and being able to, to, to literally, you know, move within the grief. And I was hospitalized for a month, unable to walk. And then I, I, I wheelchair walker all the way um, to walking again, probably about three or four months after that. Um, so it was this moment in my life where not only am I now dealing with compounded grief, but I'm actually immobilized. I will say that emotionally people will say that I'm, I'm quite resilient. The physical pain, and this is just to acknowledge anybody who's listening, I do have to say that the first time and the only time I've been in a true suicidal depression myself came from being in that level of physical pain consistently. Mm -hmm. It truly felt like there was an alarm system going off at all times. And my body knew there was only one way to stop it. Um, it was it, it was heartbreaking and, and heart-wrenching every day, just sort of knowing that I couldn't beat this thing this that was inside of me that was, you know, causing me so much pain and sending, you know, these these messages to my brain um, that I just, you know, it felt unbearable to live. It was right. um, you know, it was, it was, it was that grief process was interesting because I had to also grieve everything I thought I knew about my life. I also had to grieve everything I thought was fair. Um, and a lot of my friends and family did too. This was when the accident happened, a lot of people 
you know, said things like, this is too much, this is not fair, one person cannot deal with this. And, and you are digesting and downloading as people are saying that, you know, next to your hospital bed, and there's a little part of you that goes, maybe it is, you know, maybe I don't get out of this one. And, and I don't want to be the guy that proves that I can. Um, and, and so that came with a whole different process. And most importantly, for those who are grieving, what it did was, it taught me that there was no way to fix my grief. There was no way to fix my mental health. My only opportunity was to stay curious, compassionate and kind, get up every day and honor what came up, honor the daily relationship of what I was feeling, what I had to do and finding the middle of those two things. Um, you know, at, at one point, if it meant I had to literally limp to do that, you know, just every single day became an experiment for me. And that's where I really learned. I always thought grief was learning to live without someone. And now I truly believe that grief is, is relearning who you are and getting to know yourself within loss, which are two very different things because one feels result oriented. I just have to learn to live without them. And the other is a daily relationship, welcome to grief club, sorry guys, starts today and it ends never for the rest of your life. You know, I can't control what anybody else does. I can't control the weather, which is a big trigger for me, you know, coming from Toronto with four seasons, it's, it's, it's very triggering for me, um, which is why I live in California most of the time where it stays pretty even. Um, but for instance, I can't control today, even the questions you're gonna ask me and how I'm gonna react and how I would answer one day and the other day, sometimes I'm this advocate and I'm like, listen to this eloquent guy. And other days I'm, I'm just the son of that, that guy that you're talking about and I dearly well, miss Addison him. What I'm getting from this is you really, on a deep level, learned self-compassion, hmm. which yeah. I love. And, and, and for anyone listening, relearn every single morning. It's, it's, not, it's definitely not a checkbox, as I think, you know, as you guys are nodding, that we all know, um, you know, that self-compassion comes up every day and you get that opportunity every single day. And sometimes we miss the opportunity and, and it's just about the net going, okay, the next time it comes up, I really want to be more compassionate to myself. You said you learned how to build a new relationship with your triggers, mm. which I've never heard someone say it like that before. I really liked that. Yeah, the, you know, I, I mean, I was both in the best part of my life and the worst part of my life through all of this. I mean, because if we throw away our 20s, I mean, that's supposed to be, you know, when it's fun and, and good and you're learning and loving and all these things. So I, I, you know, I'm a hope monster. I really didn't want to have to sort of throw everything away and, and sort of be in a negative mindset. So I, I worked with my coach a lot on my relationship with certain things. For instance, like, you know, there's very basic things like the smell of fresh flowers, uh, you know, being in an accident. I, I live in Los Angeles. If I couldn't drive again, if every time I saw a headlight, I was triggered, you know, that's going to really change my life. Um, so I did interesting things to do that. Um, part of that, a big part of that was going to Europe. And I actually reestablished my relationship with flowers in Italy because the, there it was completely different. And I just made, made this you know, connection with that being about Italy and not about a funeral home. And the funny thing about Europe was, I didn't know this would happen, but the ambulance sound is different in Italy and Greece than it is here. And so it allowed me this two months where I got to know 
that somebody was in urgent need of care, but it wasn't about me and it wasn't about my memory and it wasn't you know, going to trigger a flashback. These are two very separate things. So I could reapproach the sound of an ambulance in North America months later and have that sort of new relationship. Um, so it, it was about safely and with a team of guided mental health professionals, you know, I'm just a peer, I'm just in grief club too, not a doctor, I'm not a coach, but out of my curiosity and out of my self-compassion was how can I, I bring this back into my life and how much, I mean, I still cut off stale roses. No, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna love that smell. I don't think that's for me, you know, but my ability to kind of now question and get curious about why does it smell like that? Because it's not always a loss. It's not always a funeral. Like, you know, maybe it's 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 about love or maybe there's a story there. There's something to get curious within it before you're just triggered, before you're just saying, and, and I think we all lovingly kind of go, oh, I can't do this. It smells like, you know, my father's funeral or, you know, oh, I'll never eat that again because that was my my father's favorite thing or I want more, you know, there's, there's so many of these these little things that, for me, I just realized it, it really wasn't serving me and I wanted to be able to experience everything again. So I just kind of committed to this process of taking one trigger at a time and kind of looking at that relationship and seeing if, if I could ease it back into my life. Wow. I love it. It's wonderful. I want to give a shout out for your book, where we can get it, your foundation, any information you want us to know about you and our audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, so the book is, despite everything you just heard, me always, after 13 years in what I call the grief club arena, I would freeze anytime someone told me about a loss. I just, I didn't know what to offer them or what to help them. And so I just got really serious with myself about what would you want? What would a friend look like that could show up on day one? And so I wrote a book that you can give to somebody instead of flowers, casseroles, or condolences on day one, and it stays with them for the first seven days and then weekly for a year. And it just, some of the things we talked about today, it just introduces things that came up for me and what an experiment around that might look like for people to start to build their own resilience toolkits around their grief. And really, like we said, get to know themselves within the grief rather than just try to learn to live without something that's meaningful to them. So it's called First Year of Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it. It's available on Amazon worldwide. I am easy to find on socials, Addison Brazil. There's only one of me. Uh, Brazil, like the country with an S, as my dad always said. Mygriefclub.com is uh, where you can find me as well. Hey, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know you've helped a lot of people with some of your ideas and thoughts. Very fresh. Uh, it's just kind of amazing your attitude and the way you are finding hope. Thank you so much. Thank you, Addison. And you definitely have not only survived, but you have thrived. And I mean, I agree with you. That is the goal. We want to have hope and light and dance again. And you've done that. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the show today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.